Lord, if you're able to, invite you to remain standing just for a bit longer. It's okay if you feel the need to sit down, though. But if you are able to stand, please do so. Either way, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nahum. This morning, we're going to begin reading at verse 3, there in chapter 2. It's on page 782. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, you should be able to grab one right in front of you. Turn to 782 or Nahum chapter 2 beginning at verse 3. For now, I'm going to read down through the end of that chapter, verse 13, but we'll pick up and read a little bit more before we're done this morning. This is God's word for us today, and here's what God says. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing meadow, metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandish. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro from, uh, through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The, the siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its, its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their, their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver and plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all uh, precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces glow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And Father, our prayer is that we would see that it's not an old truth, but it's a living and active truth. And so we would pray that by the very presence of your Spirit with us this morning, that your Spirit would work in our hearts as we look at this Word, and that you would change us, that you would cause us to look afresh at the Lord Jesus Christ, or for the very first time, your Spirit would cause us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us as we look at your word. Be pleased by how we hear and receive your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What, a, what I just read, as odd as it may sound to our ears, is something of a description of the destruction of the city of Nineveh. I would remind us that the book of Nahum is a prophecy to Judah, but it's a prophecy to Judah against Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And uh, the whole book of Nineveh hones in and focuses upon the sure destruction that Nineveh and the Assyrians would experience in light of all the evil that they had committed. Two things I want us to consider this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the range of their sure destruction. And that's really the verses that we, that we just read and then in a moment, we'll pick up in chapter 3 and read a few more verses and consider something of the reason for their sure destruction. As we begin reading in verse 3, verses 3 through 13 are essentially a description of the attack upon Nineveh. Now, on the one hand, these words are future prophecies against the destruction upon the city of Nineveh. And yet, uh, they are described as though they were events that had already been accomplished. Now, that's not an odd thing when the scriptures describe future events. They, they often describe them as though they are, are, they are already done. It's, it's, uh, it's not much of a stretch. Uh, future events are, in the scriptures are often framed in the past tense in order to underscore their certainty. In other words, the verdict is not out. When uh, you and I may make a prediction about future events, uh, and, um, well, it's just a good guess. Uh, maybe it's an edumacated guess, but it's, it's just a, a hopeful guess nonetheless. Uh, speaking of the future now, I'm going to be in so much trouble, but this week I, was, I, I went into one of our bedrooms, and uh, there's a stack of books that Diane has there, and uh, one, of the, one of the books, it just struck me so humorous, one of the books was entitled Praying for Your Future Husband. Now, I just was very struck and humored by that. I, I, I wasn't sure how to interpret why it is she had a book like that. Uh, <laughs> you see her looking at me? Yeah. I'm going to need uh, uh, backup and... and, and uh, uh, she assured me that, that a single lady had given it to her and asked her if she would read it and, and, and kind of see if it was a, a, a good book for, for her to pray and to, for her to, to have. But it just, it just, I just thought, you know, it, what is she saying about her future? I wasn't sure about that. So, uh, um, and, uh, and, and I'm not sure how sure her future, well, anyway, but, but, but when you and I think about the future and predict the future, it's really iffy. But when the Lord predicts the future, it's really not even a prediction. It, 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 is, it is a sure word, and he impresses that upon us 
by making that future word a past word. It's already done. Now, so what's already done is, in a sense, what, uh, to, 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 to quickly move through these verses. Um, uh, this is uh, verses uh, 3 through 10 in particular are a systematic, uh, detailed overview of what uh, is awaiting the city of Nineveh, the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. Verses 3 through 5, I think, describe something of the attack that is being mounted against them. In this case, what we know from history is that God, even though he had earlier raised up the Assyrians to do some of his work, he was now going to raise up the Babylonians to do his work against the Assyrians. And, and so, in a sense, verses 3 through 5 are, are the, the forces of the Babylonians. Babylonians uh, mounting and laying siege to the, to Nineveh, and then verses six, seven, and eight, in a sense, kind of a, in a poetic or or a, a metaphorical way, give description of the actual fall of the city, and that culminates in verse ten: desolate, desolation, and ruin. Well, that's redundancy. Many times do you got to mention something to make a point? Well, oftentimes in the scripture, things are double and triple stated uh, in order to uh, underscore and emphatically put that exclamation mark on their certainty. So he predicts these future things as though they're already done, and he describes their desolation in a, in a triple, um, thrice-stated way. Again, once again, to underscore that when we are describing the Lord's work, it's never iffy. It's always sure, and it's always certain. And, and, and yet, in this case, it's going to be a total devastation. The range of their sure destruction will be exhaustive and comprehensive. You know, stepping out of the particular historical account here in Nahum, um, the scriptures speak of other layers and levels of future judgment that are also described as sure and certain. Take the devil, for instance. No, really, you take him. I don't want him. But but take take Satan, for instance. Um, in Revelation chapter 20, even though that's descriptive of, of an event yet to come, uh, in Revelation chapter 20, it follows through here. It says, just, um, uh, and, and the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Was thrown, past tense. And yet that's descriptive of a future incident, a future occurrence. Now, so you and I live in between uh, the writing down of Satan's future and the, uh, the actual implementation of Satan's future. That ought to shape how we live, how we live in relationship to the Lord and how we are aware of the schemes of the devil and, and, and how we run to the Lord when, when we are even under attack from uh, the devil. We are dealing with a sure 
destroyed, defeated foe. On the very night of his crucifixion, our Lord said these words, I have already overcome the world. In other words, he's, he's describing what he's about to do on the cross. He's, he's about to give his life on the cross, and, and, yet, and yet, even though it's an event that's going to unfold the very next day, he describes what's happening tomorrow as though it's already true today. I have already overcome the world. Now, the implication for that is then in a passage like Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, when it speaks about the impl imp implications of Christ's death for you and I, it says there that Christ laid down his life to deliver us from this present evil age. The age that we're living in is, at present is an evil age. And, and yet... Do you know the reality of it? We have already been delivered from this present evil age. We're still living in it, but we are no longer of it. We have an entirely different view over this, pre or at least we ought to, of this present evil age. We have an entirely different relationship to this present evil age. We, by the grace of God, are those who live in this present evil age, uh, but are not to look anything like, act anything like, speak anything like this present evil age. We don't have to succumb to their shenanigans and replicate them because we're not of this age, even though we're in this age, so to speak. So this is the, the surety of the, of the range of destruction that God has against uh, Nineveh and Assyria, but how he has, in terms of our own experience today, how he has this, this, this um, uh, already sure deliverance for, for us in the sure destruction of our enemies. Perhaps the most devastating passage in chapter 2. Look at, put your eyes on verse 13 for a second. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is really kind of an imagery of, of something of the mighty um, military and army operation that, that, that's, that's descriptive of the Lord. He's, in other words, it's, it's a term that speaks of the Lord being a mighty warrior. Here's this mighty warrior in our God saying, I am against you. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. Just a little side work, about because it's mentioned lions a couple of times here in chapter 2 already. It's probably the case that Assyrian thought themselves uh, a lot like a lion. They were, they, they were the king of the jungle, if you would. They were the big boy on the block. They, they were the superpower. They were the mighty one. They, they, they could roar and they could devour their prey like a lion could in the jungle. 
yet the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Can you envision a more devastating statement in all of reality? For the Creator, the Lord God Himself, saying to Assyria, saying to Nineveh, saying to any number of folks even here among us this morning, I am against you. Well, and just so that you don't think, well, that might have just been a slip of the tongue. It might have just been a bad day that the Lord was having, kind of irritated with his kids and just kind of shoots his mouth off when he shouldn't be. Well, first of all, I don't think God has to do it more than once. Uh, he never has to shoot his mouth off. He never, he, he never has an idle word or a spontaneous moment. Uh, but just in case you might think that, let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3 and read down to verse 7. And lo and behold, tragically, that same statement is restated. Woe to the bloody city, uh, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, crack of the whip, the rumble of the will, galloping horses and abounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of, of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold! I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make uh, nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who, who, who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Oh, that's a heavy description, isn't it? And yet what I mostly wanted you to make sure that you grabbed a hold of was the reinstatement that was the statement made in chapter 2, verse 12, is restated in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you. Now, some of the other details shift and elaborate and expand, but in both cases, the Lord of hosts, the mighty warrior that our God is, looks at the people of Nineveh and declares that he is totally, completely, absolutely against you. And he gives some reasons why he's against them. He explains himself. And I think that's really what the, the first couple of verses there in chapter 3 do. They, they describe what kind of people these Ninevites are. It says, woe. We'll come back to that word in a second. But woe to the bloody city. 
I take that to be a description of the moral quality of the people that comprised that town. They were a bloodthirsty lot. They loved to do them some killing. Full of lies. They are a deceitful people. And plunder. They are a conniving, thieving people. No end to their prey. They're always prowling around to see who they might harm and kill and plunder. And then verses 2 and 3 give a description of, uh, of the, their basic uh, comings and goings uh, uh, the, 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 in order to implement their, their bloodthirst and their deceit and their plundering and their marauding and killing. Uh, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the will, the galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Now, this could, have, this could be a description of what awaits them, and yet I would suggest to you that it probably is a description of what awaits them insofar as what they have done is now coming back on them. They were the ones at one time who were the horsemen charging, and the flashing swords and the glittering spears with a host of slain all about, a heaps of corpse and, and dead bodies without end, and yet they were to be, they would soon be the ones that that would be descriptive of them as well. And, and, then, and then verse four gives a sense of like, well, what would drive them to be such violent, mean conniving, stealing, plundering people. So he, he talks a bit in verse 4 about some of their cravings and some of their desires that drove. Because, because every, every word that comes out of our mouth, every behavior that we engage in, every action that we perform, it comes from somewhere. Where does it come from? Your neighbor next door? Maybe he looked at you wrong, the wrong way or something like that. And so he's now the blame for your bloodthirst. No, the scriptures place each of our words, each of our actions, each of our behaviors, each of our commitments, they place that in the desires and cravings of our own hearts. Why did the Ninevites act the way they did? What's wrong with them people, sort of speak? Well, all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, the, the graceful, of, and, and graceful and of deadly charms who betray nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Nineveh was a bloodthirsty, violent people because... She, her heart was filled with dissatisfaction. Now, why would a heart be, and how can a heart be filled with dissatisfaction? I think I would suggest to you that, that what lies at the core of the heart of the Assyrians is described by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 10, 
when he says these words in reference to Assyria. So we're talking the same people. We're talking the same eventual events, just in different time frames by two different prophets. But it, it gives us a fuller understanding of uh, the reason behind the sure destruction of, of the Assyrians and, the, and Nineveh. It says there in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 12 through 5, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Why were the Assyrians such bloodthirsty, deceitful, conniving people? Because in their hearts, they were arrogant people. Arrogant before God. In fact, Isaiah goes on and, and uh, in a sense, uh, if he might quote the king of Assyria, to, to, to let that be a, a testimony as to his arrogant heart and the speech of his arrogant heart. When he quotes in verse 13 of Isaiah 10, uh, the king of Isaiah saying, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. The king of Assyria, thunk he hung the moon, in other words. He was full of himself. He, he didn't realize that he was merely an instrument in the hands of the one true God who, ruled over, who rules over all the worlds, all the nations. God raises up nations as he's pleased to. And he tears down nations as he is pleased to. But yet while he's raising up a nation as he's pleased to, he gives that nation wisdom and might. And it is the moral obligation of that nation when they have wisdom and might to give glory to God for that gift. And when a nation refuses to give glory to God for the blessings that it has, it is an arrogant nation. That's true of Nineveh, and it's true of any nation still today. For any nation today is only a nation at the pleasure of God. He exalts a nation. And here in this case, after he's exalted this nation, and they've gotten prideful and boastful about that, he's about to humble that nation. By the way, nothing's changed. That's still the operational procedure of our God who rules over all things. Every nation back then and every nation today will give an account to give an account to their actions of bloodthirst and deceit uh, and plunder and oppression, and yet more fully give an account to what's at the heart of all of that, an arrogant disposition, a prideful heart. But that's true not just for nations, but it's true for each and every one of us as individual people. The God who says in 
Verse 1 of Nahum chapter 3, woe to the bloodthirsty people. The prophet Isaiah said the same thing in chapter 10, verse 5, woe to Assyria. Same thing, just different description. Woe, woe, woe. Functionally, woe is the opposite of blessing. Functionally, woe is the appropriate description of judgment. And look again at verse 5, the restatement of behold, I am against you. Chapter 5, verse 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then look at this graphic description of the judgment that is coming upon Nineveh, the Assyrians. Look at how the Lord describes it. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. What do we do? These words strike us. They, you know why they strike us as being out of bounds? Because you and I are living in a culture that teaches us that shame is a bad thing. Because what the Lord is doing here is he's not just destroying Nineveh. He's going to shame Nineveh. Behavioral scientists tell us, as though they were the great gurus of our culture, that shame is a bad thing. Well, that automatically sets most of the behavioral science world at odds with the Scripture. Because while shame is not a popular concept at this moment, I'm telling you God is going to bring shame back. It's going to make a comeback. Hear hear me out. I want to make a careful distinction because shame is a weird thing. There There are things that we do feel shameful about that we're confused about. There is confused shame. There's things that maybe has been done to you that someone else did that leaves you in this thing called shame. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you do shameful things, you should feel shameful. In other words, this is a moral category. What has become of a culture that promotes shameful behaviors and tries to sucker punch the notion of feeling shame when you do shameful things. Listen, you should feel shameful. Just like a warning engine light pops on when there's a problem with uh, under the hood, that's good. It's everything's working like it's supposed to. It's warning you. You better check your engine. The engine light's on. Shame, as such as guilt, have a similar kind of functionality. They are a gift from God that when you and I do shameful things and we feel shameful about them, everything's in working order. 
Now, the key is when you do feel guilt or shame, then you and I, by the grace of God, we pray that we have enough sense to not try to cover it up ourselves or to resolve it ourselves, but we run to Jesus. For here in this context, God is on record as saying that he will bring shame. He will bring back shame upon the Ninevites. So I would suggest to you that probably at this moment they are such a violent, wicked people that their consciences have been seared and they're like they're basically like whacked out social paths. They have no sense of shame, but God is able to handle that. He's going to remove their perceived glory and pride and he's going to replace it with shame and disgrace. Those are hard words, aren't they? I don't think I have a friend left this morning. Well, give me another chance. And in this way, there is nothing untrue about anything I've said, but praise God, this is not the only truth that the scriptures teach us. And these truths that we've looked at from Nahum 2 and 3, uh, there's no expiration date on how these things work this way. If you are here this morning and you are without Jesus, then we don't have to go to the Old Testament book of Nahum, although everything it says is right and true. But we can... We can dip our toe into the New Testament. We can read in Ephesians chapter 2 that tells us that all who are without Jesus are at this present moment children of wrath. We are born with any and all who do not belong to Jesus. We are born into this world under the just condemnation of God we have, in other words, we have been born into this world with the same verdict that Nahum 2.13 and 3.5 states. I am against you. All who do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 1, again, dipping back into the New Testament, in verse 18, it tells us, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness um, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The universal verdict on all of humanity this morning, all who have not put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same verdict that God issued against Assyria in chapter 2, 13, and in chapter 3, 5. I am against you. Don't let that bounce off of you as though you have a Teflon exterior, but let that settle in your heart and soul. 
feel if you do not have Jesus, if you've not trusted in Jesus, then if everything's working right, by the grace of God, you would feel the weightiness of that statement of the creator of the universe saying to you, I am against you. But that ain't all the Bible teaches. Praise God that isn't all that the Bible teaches. Staying in Romans for a moment, we can learn that But in chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of Christ's death, we, we could be a people who do not have to say, woe, woe is me. We can be a people who echo the words of King David in Psalm 32, verses 1 and following, where it says, blessed, blessed Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Do you see this great flip? The God who would say to any of us born into this world, any and all who this morning do not have Jesus, God could say, I am against you. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because he substituted himself and took our sin upon himself and bore up under the curse and the condemnation and the judgment of our sin, any and all who turn to Jesus and trust only in him, the God who a moment ago said, I am against you, now is the God uh, who, is, uh, who, is a, who no longer holds our sin against us. So that in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, in conclusion and summation of, of describing this wonderful blessing of salvation that Jesus provides all who believe in him, he asks this rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God before us. What counts for this flip? The God who earlier said, I am against you, is now the God who says, I am for you. What did you do to flip that? You didn't do anything to flip that. God sent his son to take care of that. And now what's imperative for you and I to do is to turn and to trust in the Lord Jesus. Because Roman goes, Romans goes on to say, um, when he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And he concludes that chapter by emphatically underscoring, and who shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, and the answer is no one and nothing. Amen. 
So as we leave this morning, we can leave in this realm, or we can leave in this realm. We can leave out of here with the true reality of God's condemnation over us in which God sends us out saying, I am against you. Or we can leave out of here trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, relying only upon him and what he has done in his life, his death and his resurrection. And we can leave out of here with the sweet assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? Turn to Christ. Trust only in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Father, even these hard words from an old, crusty prophet are your words. And we pray that these words would drive us to Jesus, to drive us back to Jesus, to drive us again to Jesus, to drive us for the first time to Jesus. Father, by the work of the presence of your spirit, may none of us leave out of here this morning without trusting in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray.